1893, the burgeoning city of Chicago became host to what was called the Columbian Exposition, a World's Fair of monumental proportions created and designed to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery for European civilization of the Western Hemisphere. It has been described as America's Great Gilded Age Fair. Within the environment of the fair's extraordinary spectacle of late 19th century scientific and technological achievements, along with buildings, landscapes, and exhibits representing cultures from around the world, were also included events designed to showcase religions from around the globe. This involved presentations from a wide variety of religious figures, for it was here, in Chicago, in September 1893, that was born the World's Parliament of Religions, a groundbreaking interfaith conference, one which by no means was all-inclusive, but still provided an unprecedented gathering of a great diversity of faith traditions from both within the Judeo-Christian fold and from other religious traditions, particularly from the East, from Asia. As part of this heady environment came the opportunity for the newly formed Christian Science Church to present itself on a world stage, an event which proved to be both promising for eager adherence to the faith and problematic for its leader, Mary Baker Eddy. Hello, I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library, and I'm so pleased to be here with Richard Hughes Seeger, author of The World's Parliament of Religions, The East-West Encounter, Chicago, 1893, published most recently in 2009 by Indiana University Press as part of its Religion in North America series. Just as an aside, it might be interesting for some of our listeners to note that Stephen Godchalk's book, Rolling Away the Stone, Mary Baker Eddy's Challenge to Materialism, is also part of that same series. And I'm also so pleased to welcome Megan Pino, a researcher at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, to be part of the conversation. She is author of Christian Science at the World's Parliament of Religions, published as an article in the libraries from the collection's web series. So welcome, Richard. I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you with us. And welcome, Megan. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here as well. So, Megan and Richard, I'm delighted to have this conversation with you about the historical significance of the 1893 World's Parliament of Religions and what it means for us today, and to examine how the Christian science experience fit into the overall proceedings and character of this groundbreaking interfaith assembly. So, I thought that a good way for us to get started with our expedition into the exposition and its religious dimensions would be to cite this sentence from your book, Richard. You write, the parliament deserves a central place in American and modern religious history. Why should we think of the World Parliament of Religion set in Chicago in 1893 in this way? Well, at the time that I wrote this, the interfaith movement was very broad, very popular, very powerful at places like the Harvard Divinity School or all sorts of places. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of it going on. And here you're looking at what is arguably the inaugural event in global interfaith dialogue. So, Richard, in thinking about the presence of religion at the Columbian Exposition as part of the much longer world's Fair, 
What were the organizational structures that led this to happen? You have the World's Columbian Exposition, which is this American contribution to a very long line of 19th and early 20th century glamorous world's fairs, not quite how we think of them today. Mm -hmm. Then, in association with that, they decided to hold a series of international congresses that they called the World Congress Auxiliary. That ranged very broadly from discussions of business culture, of public health, of universal language, all sorts of big globalizing ideas were under discussion there. One of those meetings was the Department of Religion. Mm. Now, in the Department of Religion, you had denominational meetings, Christian science, congregational, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, Jewish Congress, all of this. And then kind of above that, extracted from that Congress of Religion, you had the World's Parliament of Religion, which was a 17-day event, sometimes referred to as a union meeting, that was considered the distillation not only of the Congress of Religion, but of the World's Congress Auxiliary and the exposition itself. People really saw it as this nobler, higher contribution to the Colombian celebrations. Right. So, Megan and Richard... How would you characterize the parliament as a celebration of religious pluralism versus a contest between different religions and maybe modern relevance of of different religions? The whole theme of the parliament, um, which was unity and brotherhood, Mm -hmm. meant to bring these different groups together so that they could have a conversation and really have an even playing field. And then when looking at historically how things were perceived, it felt more competitive, that there were winners and losers as opposed to everyone having this broad conversation that brought everyone together that showed the similarities rather than the differences. Mm -hmm. As time went on, it was looked at as a more competitive situation, as more who made out well, who was represented the best, who came across in the best light. Yeah, I would agree with Megan there. And I would just add that I think we have to remind ourselves that discussions of pluralism, be they political pluralism or religious pluralism, are really mid-20th century discussions. So they didn't really have that apparatus. And when you look at the guidelines for the Department of Religion in the Parliament, there's lots of ambiguity about precisely this question. We're all here to unite... Clearly, Christianity will be the best. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. there, were, there were just lots of latent assumptions right. that went into the agenda that a century later you see as very problematic. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was a liberal opening to the world. Right. You know, they just didn't quite understand what they were dealing with, really. Right. I mean, is it fair to say it was a little bit of a Pandora's box? That phrase might have been absolutely used by evangelical American conservatives. Another thing that's really important to think about the American context back then, you still had a very unambiguous Protestant establishment that pretty much ran the show in America. Right. And right at that point, the schism is beginning to open up. 
between those people who would be considered fundamentalists and those who would be considered liberal Protestants, just right there. Mm-hmm. So that is under the surface making itself felt, particularly in responses afterwards when people are assessing who won, who lost, and the conservatives feel they lost. Mm. Now, of course, you've got the Catholics and Jews there, too, which is a whole, you know, additional American story. So it was opening a Pandora's box. Yeah. Uh, another phrase that you get from conservatives that Israel danced with Baal. Oh, right. Well, I, you know, I can't help hearing you say well, there were a lot of people who didn't like the parliament. Uh, to bring you in, Megan, what was the feeling about the parliament within the Christian science community? And, and how did that unfold? So Judge Septimus J. Hanna was, at the time, the pastor of the Mother Church in Boston, as well as the editor of the Christian Science Journal. Right. And he was handpicked by Mary Baker Eddy to present the address at the Congress because she did not want to participate. In the immediate aftermath of Hanna presenting at the Parliament, there was a lot of really positive energy surrounding Christian science at the parliament and how um, they were portrayed and how their religion came across on the mm-hmm. world stage. Yeah. Um, and then there were more negative feelings. There was an issue with Hannah publishing the address against the wishes of Mary Baker Eddy. Um, and then this also caused more friction because the address was associated or attributed to Hannah and not Mary Baker Eddy, there was some mixed feelings. There was initial excitement and then some more hesitancy about putting forth any more information. So, Megan, you were indicating that there were mixed feelings uh, around what it meant for Christian science to be at the World's Parliament of Religions in Chicago there in 1893. But I'm curious, for Mary Baker Eddy, who didn't attend... What was her take on it, her judgment on it from back home in uh, New England? So initially, the big push for participation to try to be included was coming from her students, um, especially the students that were based in Chicago, to which she was pretty adamant that she didn't want to participate. She was not going to be in Chicago. She felt it was too worldly. Mm -hmm. Um, So eventually... There was an invitation to Christian scientists to participate. And reluctantly, Mary Baker already did agree to create or to help create this address that would be given at the parliament. Her express wishes were that the address be only taken from her published writings. So she had students working to gather different excerpts from her published writings that would coincide with the theme of the event, which was unity and brotherhood. She was very clear that she didn't want anything in the address to be um, negative or derogatory towards any other religion. So she was very aware of the fact that this would be given in front of a very varied group, and she didn't want there to be any reason to feel that they were attacking anyone else or that they were putting any other religion below themselves. So that was her initial feeling. So at the very end of the conference, with the newspapers and the buzz, they felt that they were portrayed very well and that 
there was a lot of acceptance and a lot of understanding and just real interest. But you also had some of the other denominations maybe not being as friendly. You do have quite a few of the people who have been antagonistic towards her prior to this parliament. That continued. Mm -hmm. So she was dealing with that as well. Yeah. Speaking of antagonists to Mary Baker Eddy, I couldn't help but notice that on the program at the World Parliament of Religions for September 22nd, 1893, you see one Joseph Cook on the same billing as Septimus Hannah. And Cook is very notable in Christian science history as a fierce uh, denouncer of Christian science. Uh, just eight years prior to the Parliament, there was Cook in Boston in a very public forum reading aloud a letter from a fellow Boston clergyman painting a very dark picture of Mary Baker Eddy's ideas and, and their influence, to which Mary Baker Eddy felt obligated to, to respond and to point out uh, their ill-conceived uh, misunderstandings of her ideas. So um, extraordinary to see them both, Hannah as the face of Christian science at the parliament and Cook on that same stage, on that same day, as invitees to this groundbreaking initiative at global interfaith engagement. It's interesting to think about how that all would have come across to attendees at the parliament. You had partisans in the audience who enjoyed their speaker. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't an overriding coherence to the development of a day. Right, right. So I think that must be what it, it felt like. It's so fascinating to think of this interfaith conference going on within the context of a world's fair, uh, many elements of which strike me as being you know, almost carnival-like. Uh, what, what was the exposition like overall that kind of surrounded what was going on at the parliament? The fair itself was pretty significant. You had about 686 acres of land out of Chicago that was being occupied by the fair. They were building structures. The building that would eventually house the parliament is now the Art Institute of Chicago. So you had two separate areas. You had the White City, which was very clean lines, lots of electricity. They were looking to show glamour in a way. Mm -hmm. They were trying to separate it from that carnival atmosphere. So the White City in and of itself was for awe. There's a Ferris wheel and there's a lot of just really modern technological things that hadn't been the norm. And then you have the Midway. Mm. And the Midway is much more typical of what you would expect from a more carnival-like atmosphere. The Midway vendors, you have food, you have villages of different ethnic groups, different people. Unfortunately, there was the misconception at the time that the different groupings or the different ethnicities could be looked at under the microscope of, say, social Darwinism. Mm. So you had the primitive moving all the way up to the most evolved. And unfortunately, these were inhabited by real people. So you would walk the mile, I think it's a mile, mile and a half of the midway. And as you pass these villages, there would be what they considered to be the evolution of man, ending, of course, with white Anglo-Saxon Protestant 
people. <laughs> Very politically incorrect. From the awful, absolutely <laughs> awful. Um, but these villages were pens, essentially, where you could watch the goings-on of different cultural groups. Yeah. It's so wonderful that you um, took on this project to write this article, because my understanding is that you had previous scholarly background looking at this other dimension of uh, yes. the, the, the exposition. During my graduate work, I believe it was in a class that I was taking on commodities. And I think it was when we got to the point of human beings being used as commodities. Mm -hmm. We ended with this situation where we discussed this and, and how these people were being used as a sideshow, right. unfortunately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me just add to that, because, I mean, this is completely correct. The Court of Honor, which is the showcase, you know, about a month into it, they're saying it's really beautiful, but it's really dull. So they begin to sort of import people from the Midway over to the Court of Honor to give it a little local color. And in the same time, the Midway, I don't know exactly the origins of this, but the Peabody Museum at Harvard is very involved in helping to set up these ethnographic exhibits. But then at some point, you also have, you know, Joe Schmo's African Village popping up next to an ethnographic display. So the whole thing becomes a really kind of tawdry mix of high and low culture. How long did this city within a city as a World's Fair go on for? I believe it opened in May of 1893, and um, I think that it continued until October of the same year, shortly after the close of the Parliament. Yes, the Colombian quadricentennial would have been 1892, and I think for reasons that were financial and construction reasons, they put it off to 93. It took me the longest time to figure that out. Right. 1893 seemed of its own, and then, oh, Columbus! over a year off. So Richard, looking back at the World's Parliament of Religions, Chicago, 1893, what has been its long-term impact, significance for the different religious groups that participated in it? I mean, the, the long-term development that people talk about is the formal introduction of Asian religions to the United States. And that would have been in two concrete forms, one South Asian, Hinduism, and the other Zen out of Japan. I mean, there were more players there, but those are the two that have legs. Mm -hmm. Because after the parliament, developments in Japan lead to D.T. Suzuki coming to the United States, and he's, of course, one of the very foundational Zen teachers in American Zen history, and then the other South Asian, you have both Anagarika Dharmapala, who at the time of the parliament is still associated with theosophy. And then you have Vivekananda, of course, both of whom go back to South Asia and get increasingly drawn into the nationalist cause. So those are the really concrete long-term effects, those two Asian ones that I can see. So, Megan and Richard, it's been fascinating getting this insight from you into this extraordinary trailblazing event of a 
world parliament of religion in the context of a world's fair and all the complexity and interweaving that seems to be going on around that with compelling new technologies, with commodification and commerce and the mixing of high and, and low culture, liberal ideas coming into conflict with uh, traditional notions, the introduction of new spiritualities into the lifeblood of America. It makes me think of these lines from the afterword of your book, Richard. Uh, you write the following, quote, the parliament itself can usefully be conceived as an event that was meant to be quintessentially modern, but turned out in the end to point to the fracturing process and the collapse of meta-narratives that many see as a hallmark of post-modernity. Oh, dear. <laughs> that, to me, was really fascinating because that is the postmodern view, at least, that you know we live in a messy world. There is no sort of dominant narrative anymore. What you were describing is the Anglo-American Protestant dominant view uh, has broken down and, and never been replaced by, by anything else. So, you know, in that way, did the 1893 Parliament of World's Religion sort of prefigure, give us a vision into the complexity of the social and religious world that we now live in in uh, the 21st century? Well, I think it did. At the time when I was writing this, it's interesting, postmodern, we had that, we could do modern, postmodern, but we didn't have anything like a postcolonial critique. Uh, we didn't know really how to critique globalization because we were right in the middle of it. It all seemed very heady and wonderful. Um, so I think on the one hand, this huge global idealism, mm -hmm. and it was so pronounced and so atmospheric in Parliament. And yet underneath that, there was just all this fracturing. So I, I do think it's looking ahead to what we now deal with. So yes, I do think it, it prefigured our situation. So Megan, you made us aware of this troubling aspect at the 1893 Columbian Exposition of the commodification of peoples uh, there on the midway. Do you think there was a kind of version of that that Mary Baker Eddy would have been sensitive to or concerned about that was going on with a kind of selling of spirituality, if you will, at the parliament within the fairgrounds of the exposition? I think, I think absolutely. When she's discussing the worldliness of this fair or the worldliness of this parliament and how it's not what she wants. Right. I feel like absolutely she sees it as more of a commodity, as more of putting on a show. She referred to it, I think, as, what was it? Vanity uh, Fair. Vanity Fair, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I think that Vanity Fair perspective is a fair one. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Vivekananda got lots of static for going to dinner parties and smoking cigars in Chicago, right. and it was a glittering time. I think it must have been very exciting to be there Yeah. for that. And the social world it generated and the contacts. Talk about, you know, uh, a networking event. Well, I do think it's so interesting that the world's parliament of religions has sort of reconstituted itself 100 years later. They've had several parliaments since 1993. 
Yes, they have. And so there is this renewed focus and, and perhaps some lessons learned by religious thinkers that are interested in interfaith. Well, thank you so much, Richard. It's It's been wonderful getting your perspective on, on the parliament, its significance, some flavor and details about what went on at it. So thanks so much, Richard. It's been really nice to just rethink about the parliament. It played a huge role in my life, of course. Well, it's a wonderful book. I very much enjoyed it, and it took me right into it, and I felt that I was rubbing elbows with these different players at the parliament. And Megan, thanks so much for the article that you wrote on Christian science at the World's Parliament of Religions, and just for your insights about the significance for Christian scientists to be part of that. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed the the conversation. I really enjoyed the research. Well, you know, I think in the spirit of the parliament, it was a little bit messy as a conversation, but I think that was appropriate for the yeah. content with which we were dealing. So it all makes sense in the end. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Seekers and Scholars as we explored what it meant for Christian scientists and other religious groups to be involved in a pioneering effort at global interfaith at the inaugural World's Parliament of Religions, a 17-day conference that took place at the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, Illinois. Our guests were Dr. Richard Hughes Seeger, author of The World's Parliament of Religions, The East-West Encounter, Chicago, 1893, and Megan Pino, author of Christian Science at the World's Parliament of Religions, an article in the Mary Baker Eddy Libraries from the Collections web series. Please join us for upcoming episodes that will range from the religious experience of American GIs in World War II to unsung heroes that help preserve key documentation on the history of the Christian science movement. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2022.